Good evening and welcome to Starfest, the St. Albert Readers Festival. I'm Peter Midgley. I'm your host for the evening and also the director of the festival. On behalf of Starfest, thank you for joining us this evening for this final event in Starfest 2020. Before we introduce our guests for the evening, I do want to acknowledge that we have been broadcasting and will be broadcasting tonight from Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. You can purchase Jesse's book tonight at both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop. We have provided links to the book in the event description on YouTube. After the introduction, there will be a discussion of around 40 minutes, and that will be followed by a short question and answer period. Please do post your comments in the comments feature on the YouTube channel, and we will relay them to the audience, to our guests at the end of the evening. Do remember, you have to log in in order to, do, to comment on YouTube. Now, Starfest deeply appreciates that both Jesse and Selena agreed to reschedule this event, and that means that tonight we can bring you this very important conversation that will continue the other seminal conversations we've had throughout this festival. Jesse Thistle's book, From the Ashes, is a number one bestseller and also winner in the prose category at the Indigenous Awards evening, awards, and of several Book of the Year awards. Tonight, he will be joined in conversation with Selina Lawyer, who is the Aboriginal programmer at the Musée Heritage Museum in St. Albert. Selina and Jesse, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, good evening. Yeah, Jesse, it's really good to see you again here. It's nice that we're uh, reprising this so everybody else can enjoy our conversation. Um, yeah, Tonsi times two, Tonsi. Yeah, exactly. Double, yeah, double yeah. double. There you go, and and a double double would would definitely warm us up where we are over here in Saint Albert. We've had a bit of snow and it's a bit cold, but uh, you know, here we are, nice and warm here with both of us having our sashes. So behind me, I have a sash that was I made for my husband, uh, Daryl, and I noticed Jesse when he saw my sash that I brought for background. He goes to his closet and he yanks out the sash and he's like wearing it around his neck. I'm like, yes, two thumbs up, awesome. It's my good one. It's made out of alpaca. Ooh, it's so it's, soft. It's so nice. Oh, lovely yeah. colors too. Hey, love it. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one. So you know, I mean, Peter talked about all these different things, all these awards that your book has won. I have my copy of From the Ashes right here. Um, it's been this huge bestseller across Canada last year and going into this year as well. So how has that changed your life? Oh, in every way. It's just, uh, it's been like a tidal wave of, of support, which we never, no, I didn't expect to happen. It's changed our, we've went, we've gone from renters to now owners of a home. So we invested whatever we had in wisely and bought property. Uh, my mom didn't own property. She's from the road allowance. Her, her parents didn't own. And so I'm the first in that line. Mm -hmm. um, my brother Josh does own his, so he's actually the first. But in our brother, from my mom and them, I'm the first. So, awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, and that's that's cool, right? My story yeah. of being homeless has bought in my first home, and I I put a roof on it recently oh, nice. to like take care of me and Lucy, and hopefully we got a little bambino cooking in the oven right now. And so, yeah, 
you know, mm-hmm. we've got to be, a, you know, represent and do wise things with the money. And so that's what we've done. Awesome. That's wonderful. Um, and it's interesting that you talk about that, uh, talk about it, you know, being homeless. The story of being homeless has put a roof over your head. I know yes. in my father's family, he was one, he was the first one to own property, to own his own home. And my husband is actually the first in his line to own the home that he lives in. He doesn't rent that yeah. anymore. So this is a, a really, I think as Métis people, we share a very common history that but you know different personal stories but different history but we definitely touch on different common things between the Mm -hmm. two of us there are a lot of people that we know in a common way and the experiences we have so i guess i kind of want to bring it back to your book from the ashes um kind of like to know like how did you come to write this story from the ashes uh well it's kind of a a longer story, but I'll give you the short version. Okay, so, sounds good. Uh, I went through the system, uh, jail system, was on the streets for a while, blah, blah, blah. Every, kind of a lot of people know my story. Uh, it's been out there for a while. So I won all these major awards. I went back to school as a uh, an adult, a mature student, and I did really well. And I, I won the top two doc- doctoral awards, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the Vanier as well as the governor general all in one month and no one at York University had ever done that before, indigenous or not. Right. And so the Toronto Star came to do a story on my life and I told them that I, in that interview, that I had this other life before I got to academia. Right. That really my rise into academia started way back when I was on the streets and I was trying to save my leg and I robbed a store. Mm-hmm. And he was really kind of taken aback by then he's like we got to do that story because it contextualizes how far you've come in life and so they put the story out and then i don't know two weeks two or three weeks later i got a call from a woman named adria simon and schuster that asked me if i was interested in writing my story and kind of the rest is history so it happened by accident to me you know i never was looking to write a book or anything like that it's interesting so i know like from other things that i've read that as well it's been a part of your your step four and step five of the 12-step program like to basically make a a searching and fearless moral inventory is step four right of ourselves and then step five is to admit to god to ourselves and to another person what's the exact nature of what we've done wrong so when you put it within that context um i think that it helps people to understand that you really did do a searching and fearless inventory of your life yes yes right? and this this moral inventory that i had been doing my step mm-hmm. four yeah started way back in treatment mm-hmm. when i was coming off crack and alcohol and coming out of the justice system and right. so it was just something that i had to do basically to stay sober keep my program going and i continued that all the way from 2008 to when I graduated and won all those awards in 2016. Yeah. So I had them all collected in like these small fragments of memory so that I could understand my addiction. Right. right? And no, that that's what I sent to Simon and Schuster. And that's when they offered me the major book contract. Uh-huh. So a lot of that stuff uh, was mainly for me right. to figure out who I was. And then when it went out, there was kind of a witness to the world uh, to admit the wrongs that I had done. and to kind of seek amends and move forward and so the book represents that in a lot of ways it is my amendments right right exactly i mean it's all out there for anyone to see you know what you had done what you had gone through uh it's really i one of the things i think uh is fascinating for me is the fact that this book was chosen for canada reads last year so what was that like for you like what was that that process how did it come how did it come about first of all 
Well, uh, we got the call. I was taking Lucy out for her uh, yearly. Uh, we go to this place called the Boathouse, and it's like this really uh, uh, shishi restaurant that we like to go to and eat lobster and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I take her there every year for her birthday. And on our way last year, we got a call from our our publicist that we were getting a call from Canada Reads. And so we pulled over. They called. They told us. We cheered in the car. We yelled <laughs> at the top of our heads because we knew yeah. what that meant, right? That's yeah. huge, huge distribution, huge focus on my book. Yeah. But the actual process of Canada Reads itself yeah. is a, it's a violent space, right? Like it's, yeah. if you can have a memoir on there, just know that they're going to be cruel. They're going to rip it apart and it's not going to be a fair fight. And yeah. you're going to come out, you know, hurting a little bit. But I'm thankful ultimately that I had the exposure that I, that I did because it helped make my book the best selling book in Canada this year. Right. right, was because of I was a Canada read, so right. ultimately I'm thankful. But it was a rough, it was a rough go. It wasn't easy, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because I've noticed with Canada reads, one of the things I, I mean, I love Canadian literature, and I love the fact that this promotes Canadian artists, Canadian authors, right, people who are just speaking their piece and trying to get their 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 thing out there. Um, mm-hmm. But the competition aspect of it sometimes skews. Um, the, yes. the process you know what i mean and I, I don't know if i'm saying that in a way that is maybe reflecting what, how other people feel about it but for me i've noticed a couple of times in the last few go rounds that um often it it depends a lot on the personality of the person defending your book about whether or yeah. not your book wins <laughs> and it sometimes doesn't have doesn't doesn't um necessarily reflect the book itself no, and that's my no. opinion. And I, I, you know, I'm just throwing that kind of out there. In here in St. Albert, they did have sort of a, a local Canada Reads. I defended from the ashes. Woohoo. Yes. And the book won here in St. Albert, as it deserved to. Um, so go out and buy it because it is a winning book here in St. Albert. Um, that's right. It is. Um, one of the things I loved about that, though, was um, it's we, because everything kind of got shut down because of the pandemic, um, a lot of it went online. And so I was able to engage people and hook up links that you had put for Canada Reads to that. And I think that it really helped people in this area to know more about this book. There's a large Métis community in St. Well, there has been historically in St. Albert and there is in Edmonton, right? That's where I grew up as in Edmonton, which is like St. Albert is sort of a suburbish of Edmonton. Like we're, mm-hmm. they're right side by side. As my, as my Kokomona said, side by each. Anyway, <laughs> so, you know, talking about grandparents and stuff, I just kind of want to go back to one of your earliest memories in the book. You begin with actually a memory um, of your road allowance grandparents and yes. you talk a little bit about them. So I want to talk about like, like how, how do you, when you're coming to those memories, how do you feel about that? Oh, it's the, they're some of the best memories that I have, you know, so, like being out there on the road allowance with them. I was just a young boy, three and a half years old. Yeah. I remember the way your hands look. They look like kind of like wa- wax paper, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, yep. when it gets kind of wrinkly, that's what the, her and her Coke bottle. She had huge Coke bottle glasses and like she didn't look like she could see very well, but she could see things that I couldn't see with my good young eyes. So that mm-hmm. she was uh, and it, I heard later that she was really good with a gun, too. She could hunt. She could skin. She could trap. She could do all those right. things. And she was full of wisdom, really. She was trying to impart some of her wisdom on how to be a good relative to me. But I didn't really understand what she was talking about then. 
now when I look back and I think about what she's, she's teaching me about Wakudu and how to be a good relative, and these are very, very Métis things. And yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, very basic. Yeah. Very basic All, to who we are. Yeah, and I always remember that that time is a really, really positive, awesome time in my life. But mm -hmm. I know the history now, and I know the dispossession that happened to our relatives who ended right. up on the road allowance. And so what I thought was a very sunny, warm place might have been a different place for them. So yeah, exactly. you know, it's all about perspective, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I suppose I should clarify for our audience, not everyone will know what it means to be road allowance people. So the road allowance is a section of land that the government sets aside, usually provincially, a piece of land between two other pieces of land that are owned by someone else and it's owned by the province and because it's property that is commonly owned by the province it people that are dispossessed or don't have land of their own can can theoretically live there very often there were places where the police would come in and you know forcibly remove people they would burn the houses down and those kinds of things so as you said you know your memory of it is very positive and warm but the memories of some people are very um, much more the other way, right? Or other ways, yeah. let's put it that way. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, very early in the book, you talk about your parents' relationship falling apart, you know, about being apprehended as a very small yeah. child um, as a part of the 60s scoop, which is really more from 1950 to about 1980 or more, um, mm -hmm. which led to your disconnection from your family and your culture. So what part does that play that you're being scooped play in your story it was huge it was huge i show you what a scoop looks like from the inside mm -hmm. from the perspective of a child like in the book there is no marker that people get that we are being scooped we just end up in state care and then we're all of a sudden in you know foster care some things happen abusive things happen in there and then we end up at my grandparents for white in brampton and mm -hmm. so that discombobulation from like your mm -hmm. surroundings first and then later the effects of the loss of culture and connection to land mm -hmm. was central to my story because I didn't know who I was right. as a Métis person. I had no connection to my kin or my mm -hmm. teachings and that happened overnight. You know, and what I didn't, I left it to the reader to figure out, I didn't say it explicitly, why did they call my white grandfather? Mm -hmm. Why didn't they just call my mom? Yeah. Why? Because that's what a scoop looks like from the inside. That's right. the decisions that they made. Yeah. That's how a whole generation of our youth, you know, people in their 40s and 50s and 60s were scooped in place elsewhere. And so right. I wanted to show that in the effect of that, because what I was actually experiencing is something called uh, adverse childhood experiences. And these are very traumatic and they lead to later addiction issues in life later Absolutely. psychological manifestations of life homelessness all the things that i, I endured were yeah. a result of me being scooped right and so right. i tried to portray that as honestly as i could yeah and i think i think you did do a very good job with that and and there i get a real sense a sense that you're not blaming anyone you're simply saying this is what happened to me this That's is my right. story and there's no blame involved in that um but i know for you like uh you have done a lot of your research, your early academic research has been on the effects of, you know, 60 scoop, but also going back to residential school and saying that basically six, the 60 scoop was sort of an extension of residential school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the classic understanding of intergenerational trauma within, within Indigenous families 
really rests in the, the field of people understanding the impacts, the generational impacts of something like this, uh, like uh, residential schools where First Nations kids were amputated from their families, raised in institutions that were loveless. They came back and they couldn't parent because they didn't have connection to their culture. They didn't ha didn't learn how to be parents from their parents because they're raised in institutions. And so this perpetuated a breakdown of family dynamics, which a lot of people have theorized is intergenerational traumas passed through the generation. It doesn't heal mm -hmm. unless it's addressed. Unless the problem is, is dealt with head on, it will only get worse through the generations. Same thing happened uh, with uh, what happened with me and my brothers with uh, being taken out of our family unit in Saskatchewan, my nuclear family, and then placed with my grandparents. Other people who went through the scoop aren't as lucky as me and my brothers. They usually end up in the home of strangers. And in that, that separation is traumatic, right? It, right. it causes ACE, uh, this adverse childhood experiences. And then the rest of the ch child's life, they, they're lost without a sense of themselves. And so they're kind of unanchored. And this creates intergenerational trauma in Métis. And so my early research looked at the phenomenon of intergenerational trauma within First Nations and say, hey, we have this in Métis families too, but it's never talked about. Right. You know, the focus is usually on First Nations people. Mm -hmm. What if we look at this through the script to Métis families? And I did that for my own family and I saw, yes, this does exist. Yeah. And then I blew it back further. And I said, well, if you look at the poverty of the road allowances, that is a kind of uh, uh, trauma that gets passed through time because we just never had anything for 100 years. Then I traced it back to what's called the, the Battle of Batash. Right. where our people lost everything. We lost our sovereignty. We lost our connection to the bison, our relative. And then before that, we lost our homeland in 1870. And so i that's what I did. I, I was the first scholar to trace uh, Métis trauma through time. And so at the time, it was a new thing. I know there are other scholars that are doing that. but Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they've basically I, taken that idea that you planted and, and extended it to their own families or their own situations as well. Um, and That's so right. that kind of brings me to my next kind of thing, like your historical research. You talk about historical research as being a form of healing, right? And that helped you do your recovery, but it also can be a form of trauma as well. So I'd kind of like That's to hear right. your opinion on that. That's right. So this uh, research that I was talking about doing, um, kind of rediscovering my family history and contextualizing our lives in Canadian colonization, looking for these little sites of historic trauma. Right. I went to the archives and I started pulling up like the black and red files. I went to LAC, started going through all their different files. And I noticed like, as I was finding like my great grandmother, Marianne Ledoux, who was uh, at the Battle of Batash and then who lived in fear the rest of her life. I was seeing her pop up in the record and like she was labeled a subversive, you know, and like I could see that they're actively being uh, persecuted by the government for their involvement in 1885. Right. And through these records and talking with elders, I was starting to get really sick, actually. Yeah. Really like, I can't even, it's not like a physical sick, it's like a spiritual malaise. Mm -hmm. that just yeah. comes over you and it's yeah. really powerful and then what happens is it manifests itself in physical things start happening in your body right. and for me it happened in my cecum 
my my lower intestine. I got really, really sick. I was rushed to the hospital. They went and searched through me and they said, well, we think that it's related to your research because they say that the your um, large intestine is like the second brain in your body oh, and it feels and there's a lot of emotion that goes through there. That's why people get Crohn's and all kinds of stuff like this. And so right. the doctor's saying you got to cool it on your on yeah. your on your research because you're actually getting physically sick right. from this vicarious trauma that yeah. you're getting from looking at these traumatic records. Exactly. And so I strongly advocate for within these institutional settings, archives and libraries that we need indigenous librarians who have a similar history that can walk back people that go and research their family history and so they can understand what's going on and right. help them through the process. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love that you brought up indigenous, indigenous librarians because my daughter is actually an indigenous academic librarian. And um, that's one of the things that she uh, loves to talk about is um, the importance of understanding that historical research can be traumatic for yes. not just First Nations, but Métis people as well. Um, so, you know, it's something that I've seen manifested in myself as well. We did a, at our, at the museum that I work at, we did a um, museum exhibit on the Michelle Band, which was the band that my grandmother on my dad's side belonged to before she lost status. She married mm -hmm. a Métis man and yada, yada, you know how that goes. Um, but I, re I recognize the same thing happening and I would get so angry reading the um, different documents about how they had, you know, the, the, this is the only band in Canada that was completely enfranchised and the mm -hmm. land was sold and the people were, were basically struck from the, the list. They weren't, you know, one day they woke up, they weren't Indians anymore kind of thing. Um, but I would get so angry about it that I would, um, I would have to stop reading it for a day or two and center myself again because I just could not continue to read it because it was just really, I knew the people, I knew the descendants of the people that they were talking about. And I yes. knew how it had affected them. I knew where they ended up or didn't end up, right? Um, so it really is something that's important to recognize. And I, I love the idea that you, you recognize the need for academics that are Indigenous who understand this. So sure. when you're talking about your time on the street, you know, um, your time being homeless, your time being, you know, as an addict, that kind of thing. I had a brother who was actually on the street for about a year and a half. So when you know people who are faced with a relative who is addicted, who is homeless, who's living rough, how, how do you, what do you say to family members of those people who have a homeless relative? Uh, what well, they, I say... Yeah. Uh, you have to put up your, your boundaries. You have mm -hmm. to have healthy boundaries, first of all. Uh, you can help to a degree, right? You can't change the person's situation. That's not going to happen. That's a personal uh, choice that they make with institutional help around them. So they right. have to find that themselves. And so I say you can help, but be cautious, protect yourself. Right. And then beyond that, I would say, you have to be there as like a catcher's mitt, you know, for when they're ready, for right. when they're ready. And so, and it's not for you to um, judge them when they need that help. If they reach out, you have to be there. If they mess up, then you have to let them mess up and then be there again the next time. Right. And so it's really about, you have to have their will. They have to want to change. And then you have to have the right intercession. It has to be at the right time. Right. And so... As a family member, it's your job to love them as well as to be there to catch them when they come out the other side. Right. And sometimes that doesn't happen, and that's the saddest part. 
Sometimes right. there is no other side, right? Yeah, there's sometimes there's just not. It. Yeah, depending yeah. on yeah, it depends on how functional or dysfunctional or whatever you want to say your family is, whether somebody's there on the other side to catch you. you know, that's right. That's right. right. Um, yeah. yeah. So I kind of want to switch the, the, just what we're talking about here. Cause you talked about, you talk about Lucy with a lot of love in the book. Um, and you say that she is the only thing in your life that, that you got right. And I love that. Right. So what I, I'd like you to kind of share with everybody, what was the role that she played like in your recovery and in your transition off the street? Um, well, everyone's heard that song. I'm every woman by uh, Whitney Houston. <laughs> that's basically Lucy in my life. So she does everything. <laughs> For me, that's good. And she always has. She was the one that saw um, something in me when I didn't see anything. She picked me up from rehab. I was just a newly reformed criminal. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't even have me in their house. And here's this mm -hmm. woman that lets me move in with her. She got me my first job. She, uh, They call it a peer support worker if you're talking about it in an institutional setting. So she helped me access society again by getting like my bank card paying off my debts, uh, going to appointments, learning to drive again, all these things, Lucy was kind of the conduit. Awesome. And so yeah. she's there to help me and, and teach me how to do these things, but to a point, right? She only teaches me as enough where I can, I have the tool set myself and then she kicks my ass to make sure that I get my stuff done. <laughs> and so she knows where that line is somehow. And, and she go. keeps me motivated to, you know, become what I am today and do what I need to do for our household. So awesome. Yeah. I love the, the part in the book where she walks you to the part where you have to fill out a form and then she leaves you to fill out this form and you're like, what? <laughs> and then oh you have to God. fill it out yourself. Right. Um, so that's a perfect example of what you're saying there in the book. I love that part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I heard you interviewed saying that she basically loved you back into the circle. That's exactly what yeah. she did. That's exactly um, what yeah. she did. Yeah. And so how does she continue to do that for you or with you? Uh, well, she, it's in weird uh, kind of uh, couple ways. So she draws on me every night, which is, <laughs> it sounds really trivial, but for someone that didn't have like connection, physical connection with their mother, mm. that really made a difference for me. And she's done that from the day I came out of rehab. Even tonight, she'll do it after this. Oh, she'll nice. draw on my head and and make sure that I'm calm. And that does something somatically to me, right. you know, she also, uh, runs our business. So all the success that's come from the book is actually not me. And people don't know that it's been her, uh, marketing genius working with my publicist, her and Rita and all the team mm -hmm. are the people who run my business. I'm just a creative, uh, arm of, of, uh, you know, Fammy Thistle. And so <laughs> She just tells me to go places and then I go and do my job and I have my other job as a professor. So right. she's the great manager of our home, right? Yeah. She's the decision maker. And so, and we've always done that. We've shared roles equally within mm -hmm. our relationship. Yeah. And I think uh, we work well together. Okay. Uh, I think that's the bottom line is that yeah. we've always been able to get through issues because we work well as a team together. And uh, she's a lot harder negotiator than I am. So if you guys are looking to get me for a book deal, go, <laughs> go talk to Lucy because I'll sell myself for 50 bucks. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, um, yeah, it, I, the the, peop, the little bits you speak about her in the book, the, you know, your love for her shows through. So I can hear that again mm -hmm. here in this conversation. Um, one of the things, you know, we're talking about like reconnecting with your relatives and your family. So I know that somebody that you've reconnected through is Marie Campbell. 
who yeah. is, yeah, she's actually was a very good friend of my mom's out here when they lived out um, by Lac St. Anne. They lived uh, at Alberta Beach and they were very good. Fr- she was very good friends with both my mom and my dad. Um, and she talked to my mom a lot while she was writing um, Halfbreed. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that now I know that you have a, she's one of the people that's helped you to reconnect with your relatives. Do you want to t- tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. When I was a new scholar at York University, mm-hmm. I went to a Métis conference in Ottawa and uh, there was this woman that stood up and sh- she said that she was from Park Valley and she decided to, she said, listed some of her relatives and she said Morissette and that's my mom's and uh, my clan, right? Mm-hmm. From Park Valley. And I'm like, oh my God, this woman might be related to my mom. And so I went up and I talked to her. Uh, and I told her who I was. I said, I'm, I'm Blanche Morissette's son, Jesse. And uh, my grandfather is Jeremy Morissette. And my and my cookum is Nancy Arcand. And she's like, oh, my God. you, uh, Gr- Jeremy was my gra- my uh, my uncle. Uh, he's in Halfbreed on page 66. Awesome. He was running up the tree. The elk uh, was chasing him. <laughs> that was the scene. That's the, He's in my book. In, yeah. And so the continue half breed my book is really just a continu- generational continuation yeah. of what happened to park valley our community our road allowance community yeah. Re- maria remembers the co- the community falling apart and she wrote about it at the end of half breed where mm-hmm. all of our women are drinking uh, there's violence in our community and our children are being let go to social services mm-hmm. she talks about that very explicitly yeah well those children that she's talking about are me and my brothers Right. And our cousins. Mm-hmm. And this is a common story that happened to a lot of uh, road allowance communities in the late 70s and early 80s. So oh, we're absolutely. not unique. Yeah, exactly. Know? The building that I'm sitting in right now was cl- what the land was cleared. It was a Métis, not a road allowance, but there was definitely small Métis homes that were along the river here. And they cleared them all out and, and tore them down so they could put the building I'm sitting in right now. It was designed by wow. Douglas Cardinal, the building that I'm in, St. Albert Place. Um, but actually, the the buildings that were here before that were Métis homes, and they were all cleared out so that this building could be built like some 20, almost 30 years ago. Wow, that that reminds me of yeah. when I went to uh, uh, Winnipeg. I, I, gave, I gave a talk at Ben McNally's or McNally okay. Bookstore, and th- that was where Roostertown was. Oh, was okay, a Métis yeah. settlement. Yeah. And so I think this history that we're sharing here is mm-hmm. a lot more uh, widespread on the prairies and just people just don't know about it, right? Yeah, that absolutely. Been erased so thoroughly that it's just, uh, you know, just the buildings that you're in now are what exist of it. So Exactly. People don't even understand that there's a history there that they're unaware of, completely unaware of. Yeah. Um, so talk about reconnecting with your relatives and stuff. So that's one way that you actually kind of connected up with someone who knew your family. Um, what advice do you have for Indigenous people who are trying to reconnect, so people who are on the other end of this, not in the, not in the receiving end, but the people who are trying to connect or reconnect, um, what advice do you have for them? Um, first one is to be brave. It was very scary for me to go back. Uh, if I wouldn't have met Maria, she kind of ushered me in to meet a lot of my relatives out west because we share cousins and aunties and stuff. Uh, and then like reconnecting with my mom and my aunties was pretty scary. I didn't know how I was going to be, uh, accepted, mm-hmm. but be brave knowing that if it does work out that the payoff is immense mm-hmm. and like, you're going to 
learn a lot about your culture and how to be an actual Métis person by connection. It's our living relatives and our communities and how we give back to our communities that make us a Métis person. Right. You know, Even though I'm dra draped in a sash, this is kind of just cosmetic. I'm performing my <laughs> Métis-ness. You'll learn about what it is to be a Métis by going back into the community and making those connections and right. building your Wakutuin back. And, yeah, exactly. And, and that's the most yeah. important thing for us as Métis people, Wakutuin, that relationality between us and everything around us, like the not just people, but also like the land and the animals and everything around us, the earth. Um, yes. So what would you ha say for the family and the communities on the other end who have family that are trying to work their way back to connect? What would you say to them? Well, I think Lucy gave me a big lesson in life. When there are relatives who are walking outside of the circle and don't know themselves, we have to be there to love them, to give them an opening back to themselves and back home. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, she's a lot wiser than I think I am, uh, mm -hmm. Lucy. And you have to be, um, you have to be able to read people when they come back and open your heart and let them back into the circle. Like I heard us, um, it's a teaching from Mi'kmaq people where they have like, a, I forget what the name of the cannibal creature is that, you know, the Wendigo. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to transform that Wendigo or make them better, you have to make a spot for by the fire for them to come and sit with you and you have to feed them and treat them like a relative. Right. And that's what changes their their metaphysical you know, condition where they're this creature, this monster, right. loving them back into the circle. And so mm -hmm. I think it's our job as relatives, when our, our relatives are ready, when they come back, that we love them back into the circle, like exactly. that story. Yeah, I love that yeah. phrase, loving them back into the circle. Um, so really, your current academic work around homelessness has actually led to a new definition of indigenous homelessness it has like 12 sort of dimensions or points um do you want to talk a little bit about that i i, I think it's just something that's so sure. deep that i'd love for you to kind of share that with everybody yeah sure so this is probably the most important thing i'll ever do in my life i mm -hmm. you know it's good to like my book is pretty important like too i guess but like that work has actually gone on to house lots and lots of families all across Canada mm -hmm. for Indigenous peoples. And so in 2012, they released the definition of Canadian homelessness, which was really just about a range of houselessness. So <laughs> it went from precarious house, house, houselessness to absolute sleeping outside. And I read it as someone who'd lived on the streets and went through what I went through with CAS and mm -hmm. all the stuff that's in my book. I said, this doesn't capture what I went through mm -hmm. and what other Indigenous peoples went through. So I foolishly put my hand up in the executive <laughs> meeting and I said, we need a, an Indigenous definition. And they all looked at me like, you know how much work that is, basically. And I didn't hear from them. A month later, they they approached me and they're like, we can't find another candidate that has both lived experience <laughs> and knows the policy. Are you interested in writing this? And I mm -hmm. foolishly again said yes. <laughs> and it was the hardest thing I ever did because I had yeah. to consult with over 60 different people across the country, different communities, different elders. It was like herding cats. And then out yeah. came this definition that really took concepts that came from Australia uh, New Zealand, America, and we kind of mashed them together and we came up with the concept. This is the baseline of what it is. Uh, the overarching theory is that indigenous homelessness is a product of broken relationships 
due to colonial interruption over time. It's the same in Australia as it is in New Zealand, as it is in here, here in Canada, in the US. And so it's really in the way that the state formed to dispossess indigenous peoples off their lands, right. destroy their connection to culture, to their worldviews, to their family, their kinship, to their Wakudawan. Mm -hmm. And when they're pushed out of these relations, then they become houseless. They become absolute houseless or without a place to live. And that's the homelessness that we're seeing in the streets. And so mm -hmm. this idea has gone on to change the whole of the housing sector right across the country. Mm -hmm. And this comes from other people telling me this. I know that there's different cities that are now using the definition to house and right. build programming for Indigenous peoples. And it's in a lot of ways working. And so, right. you know, this is a grassroots. Our knowledge is now... Uh, indigenizing the institutions in the country. And I think that's what they call real indigenization, where exactly. you know, it's not they're just hiring an indigenous person, they're actually changing the way that they think. They're thinking like an yeah. indigenous They're trying person. to implement something in a different way. So I think yeah. that just to tell you, to, to share with our audience, um, the 12 dimensions include historic displacement as one of the um, dimensions, spiritual disconnection, um, talking about relocation and mobility, those kinds of issues that people really don't necessarily think of when they look at a homeless person on the street and say, you need to move out of here and be somewhere else. Right. Right. So yeah. um, it's interesting because I think that in Edmonton, the uh, mayor, Don Iveson of Edmonton seems to have a pretty good handle on those, on these kinds of ideas. Like this was you, this definition was made in what, 2017, something like that for the Canadian yes, yeah. observatory on homelessness. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, so there's, I think, something like 2,000 chronically homeless people in Edmonton, which is like the next the next big city to St. Albert. Like a lot of the people that become homeless in St. Albert will end up in Edmonton because yeah. of just because, just because. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, they had in the last month or so, they set up a camp called Camp Pekawewin, which Pekawewin, I think I don't think I'm saying it right, but anyway, um, it was a home, it was a camp for the people who had been sort of they had been housed in a facility for a portion of the pandemic experience, and then suddenly that was closed. So they all moved together to a park, and actually, it was in some ways it was really beneficial because it enabled a lot of the local um, community supports to focus on providing support to them there. Right. So yeah. different things were more available more easily to them. They, um, but they've since closed that down and Iveson has worked towards um, rehousing people or at least housing them, them temporarily so that they yeah. would be, they'll be in a better space. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, at the same time here in Alberta, just over the last day or two, there's been this huge Twitter storm. Um, a a counselor, a town counselor in Slave Lake, was um, recorded talking about the homeless problem there. There was a <laughs> her name is Joy McGregor. She's a town counselor in Slave Lake. The local friendship center had started um, an initiative to um, work on housing their people over the winter. They couldn't use the facility that they'd used for overnight housing before, so they wanted to use a formerly provincial I think it was a provincially owned building they wanted it to be rezoned so they could use it for that for the purpose of um, working their support services out of there and also using it as an overnight shelter um, the, all they asked of the council 
was rezoning of this area. Um, one of the quotes that I have from Joy McGregor. Now there is a very long. If you go to the if you go to the town council website, you can see the whole thing. But her comment was, um, "We need to we need to work at getting these people home," which is not a part of her conversation that I have a problem with. But she says we need to stop being so nice to them. We need to stop feeding them. We need to stop doing all these wonderful things for them. And so she's apologized for, yeah, I know. Um, she's apologized for the hurt that her words may have caused, I believe is, I'm not sure if I'm quoting her exactly right on that. Um, can you explain to people who are listening, who might not understand how that could be a hurtful statement to people sure. who are listening? Because I'm fairly certain that she does not understand what no. she's saying in this in this in what she in how she's saying it yeah so the central premise of rehousing someone that's let's say indigenous mm -hmm. uh suffering from homelessness uh is to reconnect them and treat them as a relative right, right. so you have to um you know have the housing supports first off then you have to have the emotional, spiritual supports in place of community. You have to re-embed them into like uh, education and work. Uh, make sure that there's food. All these things are attached to hospitality and uh, the way that our people interact in a good way with each other. And so this woman has actually said the exact opposite of what I would say the solution to homelessness is. Right. You have to be nicer. You need more empathy. You need to treat them as a relative within this web of all my relations. And she is not acting like a good relative. At this so, point, I would say, yeah. Yeah, um, it's kind of terrifying to hear her speak that way of homelessness if she's on the file. You know, she well, doesn't understand the issue. So I don't think she's actually on. The, I, they have what they're calling the homeless coalition up there. So it's it's been spearheaded by the local friendship center. Barb Coutre is the person who's sort of organizing it up there. She's the executive, executive director of the Friendship Center up there. So it's kind of yeah. interesting to hear the conversation going back and forth. There's been a little bit more, you know, extension of what the ideas were um, around it. It's something that they have been working towards as a group, as spearheaded by the local Friendship Center, who I think would probably have a much better understanding of what's going on. Um, now, she says that her, her, com her comments were taken out of context, Right. But right. if you listen to the whole thing, there is a lot more of, of there's a lot more to the conversation than just those phrases. And she's talking about people, you know, stealing sanitizer so they can drink it. She's talking about one of the first things you see when you drive into town is these homeless people are outside of somewhere plugging their phones in, charging them. And that's the first thing you see when you come into town. So her, you know, there's a there's a sort of an us and them kind of a mentality already sort of being pro pro bleh, portrayed there. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So if you were going to, if you could speak to the town council there, what would you say to them? What would you ask them to do? Well, I would, I would say you have to confront this one person who has this point of view uh, because that is uh, like, that's the whole issue is the us and them. Mm -hmm. To be able to other people and say, oh, look at the way that they're doing things. Aren't they an eyesore towards our town, mm -hmm. right? Who is our? Is that property owners that have like big SUVs and, you know, go to hockey practice on Saturday? Because right. those people are part of the community too. Yeah. They're just not being taken care of by social welfare in the proper way.
And that's your job as city council to make sure that services are delivered to those people so that they can be rehoused and rehomed and rebuild relationships and find confidence in themselves again. They definitely don't need people judging them and telling them that, you know, what are we going to do with this quote unquote problem where people are plugging their phones in? That's just totally the wrong type of mentality to have towards that. And uh, Mm -hmm. in this era of housing first, that's kind of really disconcerting to hear someone because that's how people used to think in the 80s, you know, it's right. not a modern way to look at the issue. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, I, I know where I live. I live in the middle of Alberta, right, the middle of Redneck, Canada. Um, and having grown up here, I, I'm, this is no surprise to me. Um, mm. You would think people had come quite a long ways from, from there, you know, seeing the struggles that my parents went through, right, probably, um, and my grandparents even, to see that, you know, those kind of ideas are still being you know, spoken out loud and recorded at a town council meeting is, um, you know, a little bit shocking to those of us who are educated, who have lived through whatever we've lived through and still are um, hearing these things. So I guess kind of to turn the page and talk about kind of where we're headed now, I'd like to ask you, like, what are you working on now? Like what's coming up for you in the, in the near future? Just want to, you know, kind of change the tone here a bit. Sure. So I was working with uh, Dr. Janet Smiley out of Mm -hmm. uh, St. Michael's hospital. Uh, on a project called Pacoya Win, uh, coming home. So it's kind mm-hmm. of apropos that you mentioned that there's yeah. this settlement called that. And really, what we're doing is retraining doctors across the country by building medical guidelines on how they can better interact with homeless Indigenous peoples that come through triage mm-hmm. or emerge centers, mm-hmm. places where you know Brian Sinclair was ignored to death uh, when he was in diabetic shock. When really. What we argue is that doctors, again, and I keep nailing it home, need to see themselves as relatives within the web of Wakuruan because that would change the way that they treated with their patients. Mm-hmm. Let's let's use the Brian Sinclair incident. So he comes in, he's in diabetic shock, and he's trying to talk and he can't. And the people at triage automatically assumed, one, that he was homeless, two, that he was a native guy, three, that he was drunk. And they all those together and say, so they said, okay, let's just go stick him in the corner and forget about him. And that's what happened. He died there. He went into shock. Now, imagine, and this is what me and uh, Dr. Smiley have proposed, that if that person at Triash saw Brian as an uncle or Mm -hmm. a mushum or their brother, they would have treated them in a completely different manner. Yeah. You know, that racism would naturally go away. That stigma would naturally go yeah. away. And so that's what we advocate in this yeah. uh, pro- uh, project, Pequiwin. It's a little more complex than right. that, but that's the basic yeah. idea. Yeah. And we're hoping this will save lives it and will. change. And, you know, that's my side gig. And then, of course, I'm working with uh, as a professor at York University, mm-hmm. U- University teaching our, our, our history and about Métis trauma and all that good stuff. So, Woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think I heard you say um, the last time we talked that you have another book sort of cooking on the back burner in the back of your head there. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got a, my uncle, Ron. I, is that the book you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's my, what I'm he, thinking of. Yeah. 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 He's uh was in the 80s and 70s, a uh, professional bank robber. And so his life is more uh adventurous than mine let's just say and i'm going to write a fictional account of what happened with him and 
the impacts of things like residential schools on male role models and why we see such out of control rates within our prisons right. with indigenous peoples. It's a reflection that it's actually a reaction, intergenerational reaction to things like residential schools, loss right. of land, loss of language and culture. And so I'm going to write about that. Oh, awesome. Oh, that sounds yeah. like it sounds exciting. Um, although I don't know if I think it's more exciting than your own book here. So I think we're probably getting to about the time when we would be interested in uh, having some questions from people that are out there. I think we're probably about that time, Peter. I don't know. I can't see a clock, so I don't know what time it is. I'm running on. I'm running on Métis time here, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of hope that we can get some questions from the people out there. I, You know, I one of the things that I, I feel very comfortable with you, you know, Métis people are Métis people no matter where you are, right? So we also often yeah. when we get sitting down and we're having a cup of tea together, right, you know, we just end up talking about, oh, who do you know that I know and who do I know that you know? Um, uh, it's one of those things that I really enjoy about uh, speaking to Indigenous authors, especially because, you know, we all kind of have some commonality. We end up, we end up figuring out how exactly we're related in some way because we are, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we have antennas. Do, 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 and they yeah. just like search out who's Métis. Oh, that's yeah, your Cookham. I know them. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Oh, your yeah. Cookham's brother was married to my, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's often yeah, yeah. how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I really enjoyed our conversation. I know that we had a great conversation last month when we got together. Unfortunately, yeah. nobody got to share it. But this time again, you know, we had another great conversation. So I'm just kind of waiting to hear from these guys here if we've got any questions from our listening audience. I, I do yes. have a few. So, okay. okay. Just waiting for Trevor to get me back on. So, carry all right. On. So, we're just waiting for my guys at this end to kind of figure out what all they're right. doing over here. The first question I have here is uh, Mag Barry says, as I read your book, I could not believe that you had survived so much. Is there anything that you think you possess in your character that made it possible for you to forge on? Uh, yeah, I think being Métis had a lot to do with that. We are very tough people, like literally. Uh, so... But beyond that, I think that I, I had good teachings from my Mushum and Kukum. Uh, they taught me about how to be a good relative. And, um, you know, I wasn't always the best person out there. And, and I think, like, at the most base level, there were things that I was just willing to do where others weren't, you know. And so I stole, I lied, I did everything that I needed to do to survive, you know. And for many years, I felt ashamed of that. But looking back, I'm like, that's what anyone would do in that situation. They would fight for their life. They would claw out of the hole that they were in or they would die. And, you know, a lot of those people did die. I'm just one of the people that survived. So mm -hmm. maybe that I'm just willing to do things that others aren't, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, yes, Mag follows up and just comment there and says many times I, when I feel disillusioned or feel negative, I say to myself, come think of what Jesse and all that he had to overcome. So you, you're, you've become an inspiration. Um, and that is, uh, Michelle had a question here about writing other books, which I believe was covered earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, Marley Ranson asks, at what age did you understand that your behaviors and attitudes had come from the trauma you experienced as a young child? Was it something you were aware of as a child or as a teenager? No, I wasn't aware of it until I was in my mid thirties and I went to rehab and they started to talk to me about this like thing called, um, PTSD. All the other guys in the program had it. Mm 
and they were talking about like stuff that in many ways is worse than what I went through, a lot worse. And so it was true there. And then as I got to university, I started really discovering and looking back and uh, looking at the work of other scholars. I saw that, hey, I have this uh, early childhood trauma and my addictions, uh, my criminality, all the different things that I, I lived through or just an expression of that, you know. And uh, like uh, Selena said, I got really upset and angry because I realized that this was uh, perpetrated down upon my family from our historical dispossession over 150 years. And my life was just the latest expression of this trauma. And so I didn't learn that until I was 33, 34, 35. So, yeah, a long time. Uh, well, thank you. And Karen, uh, Karen Reinecke says, asks, how many more generations do you think will it take for Métis and First Nations to overcome and move past intergenerational trauma? That's a great question. Uh, I'm hoping my, my niece Alexa, or maybe even when I have a kid, uh, that they won't have to recover from my their childhood like I did with my brothers or my cousins had to. I know that my niece, Alexa, believes that she can be a writer, just like Uncle Jesse. And, you know, that makes me so happy because I couldn't read very well at her age, if at all. And I wasn't proud to be Indigenous at all. And so she has both of those things. And so I can see the trauma already starting to end in her generation. Maybe it'll be the generation after that at the generation after that. But I don't think it's healthy for us to get over it. Right. You know, we might deal with it, understand it, internalize it and fight it, but we'll never get over it. You know, think, we'll never yeah. just deal with it. It's something yeah. we have to sit with and seek justice for in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. just justice does not mean retribution. Uh, justice is about setting the historical wrongs right, Re reclamation of land, mm -hmm. reconnection with our kin, uh, you know, more education, more research, all this kind of mm -hmm. good stuff. So I, I kind of just want to throw something in there. I've heard the elders say that it took us seven generations to get to this point, and it will take us seven generations to heal from this, right? So there are incremental um, bits of healing that are happening i think as we're going through right to see your own story and you for you to look forward to your for your own children i look at my children and you know how that they're very educated that they all have an understanding of who they are they grew up knowing that yes um, yes and for it's not just an indigenous problem right it's a canadian problem when you look at this town councillor who feels comfortable speaking the way she did um we see that there is if this healing is a two-way street right we need to be walking side by side beside each That's other right. healing together on this journey it's not just us that has to do the healing and i agree with you that it's not retribution but it's justice that needs to be served yeah yeah that's so wise of you to say because with that side of the traumatic equations most often left out settlers or guests in this land rarely refuse to take responsibility for the way that things have happened. Right. But you're right. We need to walk together. Mm -hmm. That's the only way forward. The treaties say that very explicitly. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to what was put in the treaties. Let's work together and move forward in a good way. Because right. we're not going to heal any other way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do we have any other questions from our... I have a question, but I'm. there's a question here that... Uh, 
a lighter tone to end it on, but I feel almost <laughs> silly asking it. It was just, Jesse, how were you able to run 10 kilometers every day on, on such a wrecked foot? But it does tie into to this whole finding courage within yourself, I think. Yes. So it's a strange thing. Um, when I used to go out running, I'd run one, two, three kilometers, and it hurt like bloody hell, and I didn't want to do it. But somewhere around the 4K mark, 5K, my leg would go numb and my body would go numb because with that kind of pain, your body flushes it with itself with endorphins. So I'd actually get an early runner's high earlier than the other runners. And in that way, I think that running was almost like ceremony for me. I'd enter mm -hmm. into kind of like quasi-spiritual realm. Um and I've heard that this happens to sun dancers. That's why they put those big um, hooks into their chest and they dance around the pole. It's the pain and the endorphin rush that they're doing. And so that happened every time I went out to run. Mm. So in that way, I, I say that that time in my life was probably the holiest, the closest I ever was to real ceremony, driving myself in and strengthening my spirit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if I could do a 3K or 5K now at the size I am, but back then that's what I used to do. And so, right. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you so much for that very, very thoughtful answer to to what seemed like a lighter question after the first, <laughs> after the past uh, Karen's question. So thank you so much for that, Jesse. And thank you, uh, Selena, for joining us again. It, it was an absolute delight to hear you both talk. Um, and Jesse, thank you for coming, joining us again and for sharing so, so generously. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you, Jesse. It's really been a pleasure to sit, sit with you and chat. Thank you, Selena. It's been nice to talk to you again. And hopefully we'll have tea in the future. Right. Sometime. One of these days, yeah. right? Post-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there will be a post-pandemic. And as we sign off for 2020, I just want to thank you all for joining us throughout this festival, for sticking with us, and to remind you that you can buy Jesse's book from both Edmonton's independent bookstores, uh, Audrey's Bookshop and Glass Bookshop. So thank you. Please go out and buy that. And um, again, one final thank you to our tech team who carried us through this entire festival. It has been an absolute delight to work with you and thank you for making this possible. So Jesse, Selena and everyone out there for 2020, thank you and see you next year. Okay. Good night. <laughs>